Pastor Jones just wanted to sell his TV. So in the days before Facebook Market or Craigslist, he did what people did back in the day, and he ran an ad in the newspaper. But unfortunately, there was a typo in the newspaper. And so the ad ran on Monday, and it said, The Reverend A.J. Jones has one color TV set for sale. Telephone 626-1313 after 7 p.m. And ask for Miss Donnelly, who lives with him cheap. The ad was corrected on Tuesday. It said, we regret any embarrassment caused to Reverend Jones by a typographical error in yesterday's paper. The ad should have read, quote, the Reverend A.J. Jones has one color TV set for sale cheap. Telephone 626-1313 and ask for Miss Donnelly, who lives with him after 7 p.m. <laughs> Wednesday, the Reverend A.J. Jones informs us that he has received several annoying telephone calls because of an incorrect ad in yesterday's paper. It should have read, The Reverend A.J. Jones has one color TV set for sale cheap. Telephone 626-1313 after 7 p.m. and ask for Miss Donnelly, who loves with him. <laughs> Thursday, please take notice that I, the Reverend A.J. Jones, have no color TV set for sale. I have smashed it. <laughs> Don't call 626-1313 anymore. I have not been carrying on with Miss Donnelly. She was until yesterday, my housekeeper. <laughs> Friday, wanted a housekeeper. Usual housekeeping duties. Good pay. Love in. Reverend H.A. Jones. <laughs> Telephone, 626-1313. Like poor old preacher Jones, uh, all of us know what it's like to be misunderstood, don't we? Uh, it happens in all kinds of ways at all different times in life. But there may be nothing more deadly to the life of the church than if we misunderstand the message of the gospel. If we misunderstand the details of the gospel message, and if we misunderstand the duty that is before us to share that message, well then frankly it ruins everything. Now tonight I know that some of you have come to Sharon Heights and maybe even come to the Lord with a lot of what we might call religious baggage. You've come with a lot of cultural southern tradition about what church should be and about how Christians should look. That may or may not be connected to the things the Bible actually says. And so you're not exactly sure where those traditions end and where the Bible starts. Because of that, you may find yourself today withdrawing from people whose Christianity doesn't look exactly the way yours does. You find yourself speaking harshly to them and about them and find yourself maybe even judging them. Then again... Some of you, whether you were raised in that or not, have now become so free in Jesus that you feel like there is no standard of righteousness for you anymore because, hey, God forgives, right? We're under grace and not law, and that's what he does. It's possible for Christians, true Christians, to misunderstand the gospel message after they've believed it. But it's almost guaranteed today that the culture around us is going to misunderstand the gospel that we preach and so some of y'all, maybe in recent days, because of the actions of people you work with or people in your own family, you are shocked to find out that everybody does not love you just because you love Jesus. And it's made you maybe want to withdraw from sharing the gospel out of fear. It's maybe even just made you just pray for fire and brimstone to fall on everybody around you in anger. It's easy for us to misunderstand the details and the duty of the gospel. Tonight, we are going to continue going through the book of Acts, looking at the distractions that created problems in the early church. This is the last one that I want to deal with tonight, where the Apostle Paul himself deals with a church that is confused about the nature of the gospel, 
And then how that puts him in a situation where the culture around him is confused about the nature of the gospel. And I want to show you tonight what it means for us as God's people to live with a clear understanding of the gospel, even if the church doesn't understand it. And what it looks like for us to be faithful about presenting the gospel message, even if the world doesn't understand it. And it's in Acts chapter 21, beginning in verse number 17. This is not a passage of scripture that gets a lot of airtime in most churches, but I think it really is relevant to about all of them. Acts chapter 21, verse number 17. And we're going to read to the end of the chapter, then in the chapter 22. So I'm not going to make you stand for this. It's rather lengthy, but it says... When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they had heard it, they glorified God. They said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. They have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took them in, and the next day he purified himself along with them, and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled, and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone, everywhere, against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. And all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out of the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. When there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language saying, Brothers and fathers, Hear the defense that I now make before you. Trust the Lord to bless the reading of his word tonight. Well, the last major section of the book of Acts deals with the apostles' desire to go to the city of Jerusalem. To visit the church there and then to preach the gospel in the city of Jerusalem. And you find in this last major section of the book of Acts that there are many of the Christians in Paul's life who thought this was a bad idea. 
they realized that the city of Jerusalem would be very hostile to Paul, and they did not want him to go. But you see that Paul is determined. Even though the church thinks it's a bad idea, Paul believes that this really is God's mission for him, to go to the city of Jerusalem. And we read here in these verses that the Apostle Paul, when he's there, he meets with the leadership of the church in Jerusalem. He ends up in the temple of Jerusalem, and there he's arrested. And the arrest that happens in Acts chapter 21 sets the stage for really the last major section of the book of Acts, where in chapter after chapter, the Apostle Paul has to give faithful witness and testimony to the gospel message. And people put Paul literally on trial. And what you have in the last part of Acts is transcript of one trial after another. Paul before Agrippa. Paul before Felix. Paul before Festus. And Paul is testifying to these men about how Jesus changed his life. And what Paul does in these verses really is remarkable. As they ask him, Paul, who are you? Paul, what's all the controversy about? Paul, what's the deal with your life? And something amazing. Paul says to them, listen. I cannot tell you the story of my life without telling you the story of Jesus. And I love that, don't you? I love that Paul says, listen, who I am is not going to make any sense unless I tell you about who Jesus is, what he's done for me, how he died for my sins and rose again from the dead. And that's exactly what Jesus said would happen in the lives of his people, the church, before he ascended. In Acts chapter 1 and verse number 8, he said, You will receive the Spirit of God when he comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And that's what Paul's doing here in these verses. So Paul has to explain himself. He has to be clear about the gospel. But even before he's arrested, he has to be clear about the gospel to a church that has some cultural hang-ups related to their religious past. And Paul in both of these scenes, as he's clear about the gospel to a confused church, and as he's clear about the gospel to a conflicted culture... Paul reminds us today that as a church and as believers, we exist to be clear about the message of Jesus. That's why we're here. That's what God expects for us to do, is to be clear about the message of Jesus. But you know, like poor old Pastor Jones trying to sell his TV, it's not hard to be misunderstood, is it? And for us, it's not always hard to, un to, to misunderstand the message. So we see a church that misunderstands the message. We see a culture that misunderstands the message. And today I want to talk to you about the dangers of what happens when we misunderstand the gospel or misunderstand the duty that we have to share the gospel. So notice with me first, in the meeting that the Apostle Paul has with the leadership of the church Jerusalem, verses 17 through 26, Paul has to explain himself and explain Christ to a conflicted church. He has to explain the gospel to a conflicted church. Paul's wanted to go to Jerusalem. He finally makes it. To Jerusalem. And he meets there, the Bible says, James, who's the Lord's half brother, the pastor of this very large mega church, the first church that was ever planted in the world, the church of Jerusalem, that had, by their own admission, thousands of people. Don't you like how James, the pastor, works that in? Well, Paul, you know, we have thousands of people. You know, that's how pastors are. We had thousands. And Paul meets with them, and he begins to recount for them all of the things that God has done with him as he's preached on these missionary journeys in Acts to the Gentiles. He talks, about, uh, he talks about rites, and he talks about revivals, and he talks about resurrections, and he talks about miracles, and churches planted, and people coming to faith, and all these incredible things. He talks about ministry. He talks about miracles. We don't see it in this text, but we know from other places in the Bible that the Apostle Paul brought with him a large offering from these Gentile churches to help the church of Jerusalem that was trying to survive 
in a time of famine. We also know from verse number 29 of this text that the Apostle Paul had a guy by the name of Trophimus the Ephesian with him. This guy from Ephesus, this Gentile who had believed the gospel. This guy who was standing there as proof that God really was saving these people that had no connection to Judaism. And if you pay attention to the pronouns in the text, you know that Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, is with Paul here too. Another Gentile who is proof that God is saving these people who are far from Israel. And when Paul gives this report, the Bible says that everyone hears it, verse 20, and they glorify God. They're excited about the work that God is doing in the world. They celebrated what God had done through Paul's life, and they should have celebrated what God had done through Paul's life. And don't you wish it ended there? Because there's a problem. And the pastors of the church lay it out to Paul. Look at what it is. Verse number 20. You see, brothers, how many thousands there are among the Jews. Of those who have believed, they are all zealous for the law. Now notice this phrase in verse 21. It would be good for you if you love your church to underline this phrase. And they have been told about you. Paul, we've got a problem. There's some rumors floating around about you. And they're going to deal with those rumors. But before we look at the real problem here, I want to talk to you for just 35 seconds to 4 or 5 minutes about the problem that led up to the problem. Do you see what they tell Paul? Paul, we have heard what somebody told us about what they heard about you. What's the problem here in this passage? The problem is that somebody is talking. So let me just get down here real plain and preach to you for a minute. The biggest problem at Sharon Heights Baptist Church is somebody. Well, you know, somebody told me. Yeah, I bet they did. Don't be a somebody. Don't be a somebody. These people are talking about things that are clearly not true, that they certainly don't understand, and they have no business talking about it. But they've been talking about it, so now it gets to Paul, and Paul has to deal with it. But to truly understand their concern, we have to really unpack all kinds of theological stuff and all kinds of cultural stuff as well. You know, as I've told you, one of the controversies in the church of Acts is that you have all of these Jewish believers trying to figure out how non-Jewish believers fit into the church. And some of them were actually preaching and teaching that you had to become Jewish, you had to be circumcised, had to keep the law before you could become a Christian. Those people were true legalists. And I think we have a definition of legalist here. You can see the long definition as best I can do. But a legalist is somebody who, in varying degrees, teaches or believes that we earn God's blessing, grace, and or salvation through our own work, particularly through keeping the Old Testament law. You need to know what a legalist is. And there were true legalists in the book of Acts who said you have to keep the Old Testament law before you can be a Christian, you have to be circumcised. You have to follow the customs. You must obey all the commandments or God will not save you in Christ. Paul spent his entire life in ministry preaching against those people. The whole book of Galatians is written against those people. The church in Acts chapter 15 had already publicly denounced the teaching of those legalists. And so I want to be very, very clear to you today since you are a very religious person, since you're here in church on a Sunday night, of all things. <clears throat> I want to be clear to you that the gospel message does not say, the message of Christianity is not that we are saved by our good works. 
The message of Christianity is not that we are saved by our good deeds, even working with the grace of God. The message of Christianity is that we are saved by Jesus working on our behalf. So a legalist says we have to, to some degree, to earn our salvation. But that is not the people that Paul is dealing with here in this text. These people do believe that salvation is by grace alone. They do believe that salvation is through Jesus alone. They do believe that salvation is by faith alone. But there's still people who think in very Jewish terms. Because that's all they've ever known. There are people who value their traditions. People who value their past and their heritage. And the nature of the rumor, as you see, is that Paul is telling the Jews not to circumcise their children, not to keep the law, verse 21. So the charge against Paul, properly understood, is that Paul is what is called an antinomian. So I think we've got a definition of antinomianism. I want you to say that word with me, antinomian. Let's try it again, antinomian. That makes you feel smart just saying that, doesn't it? An antinomian basically translates to against lawism. Antinomian is one who teaches or believes that the grace of God in Christ does not necessarily produce a righteous life, which the righteous life would typically be defined by keeping the Old Testament moral law. So do you see what the, the, the charge against Paul is? The, Paul, the charge is, Paul, if you preach that message of grace and salvation, then you are going to cause people just to live however they want to. That's the charge against Paul, that he is an antinomian. So while legalism believes in salvation by good works, antinomianism believes that salvation doesn't necessarily produce good works. And we know that the people involved in this story were concerned about a cheap grace or a kind of easy believism that said that if you just you know, believe in Jesus and you can live however you want to and you'll get your get-out-of-hell-free card. Because James, who's mentioned in this text, wrote the book of James about that problem. And he said in James chapter 2, verse 26, that for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, even so faith apart from works is dead. These people are concerned, as we should be, about a Christianity that is separated from true righteousness. And so I want you to understand today that both of these errors run through almost every church. That there are people who believe that they saved themselves by their good works, Sitting beside people who believe that if they really are saved, they can live without any kind of good works in their life. And so really, legalism and antinomianism are both the same error, and it's the error of divorcing God's law from God's love. A legalist says, the only way I can get God to love me is if I obey His law. And an antinomian says, God loves me, so I don't need to worry about the law. What did we just sing a moment ago? We just sang, amazing love, I know it's true, and it's my joy to honor you. That in response to the love of God, I live a life that honors Christ. I live a life of righteousness. I live a life not where I'm trying to earn my salvation, but having received salvation as a gift, I want to show the glory of God in the things that I do. Now, I want to give you four principles today. And this may be as far as we get tonight, and if so, that's okay. It's still even better than it did last Sunday. Um, I want to give you four principles as this plays out in the life of the church. And the first principle you see there is that the gospel is not legalism or antinomianism. Paul was not a legalist, but he was not an antinomian either. He believed totally that a person was only saved by the grace of God. 
He believed it as strong as anybody's ever believed it in history. He believed it probably stronger than some of y'all believe it. He believed that salvation was not of him that willeth or of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. That's Romans chapter 9. He said it's not a product of your will. It's not a product of your work. It's a product of God moving on your behalf. He was not a legalist, but he wasn't an antinomian. Because he believed that if you really experienced the grace of God in your life, you could never be the same as you were before you experienced it. And you think about how Paul writes about salvation in Ephesians 2. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, who is rich in mercy, with His great love wherewith He loved us, He has resurrected you to walk in newness of life. By grace you have been saved. Paul said, listen, if you have been resurrected, you are going to live like you are alive. You're not going to rot like the corpse you used to be. But for those of us that maybe have more of a legalistic tendency, we think that everybody who disagrees with us about anything is an antinomian, don't we? For those of us that are a little bit more antinomian, we think everybody that disagrees with us or lives a little bit differently, they're all legalists. They're all self-righteous, judgmental prudes. But the gospel is neither. It is neither bondage to good works or it is not freedom from good works. It is freedom in Christ to do good works. Because it is Christ working in our place. It is Christ living in our place. It is Christ dying in our place. And Christ producing good works in us. So folks, understand. If you're taking notes, write this down. A gospel that compels you to work to earn your salvation is not good news. And it is not the message we preach. A gospel that compels you to work to earn your salvation is not good news. But a gospel that does not make you holy before a holy God is not good news. Neither message is good news. The gospel is neither one of those things. So to a legalist, the gospel looks like antinomianism. And to an antinomian, the gospel looks like legalism. And that's the second principle. He trusts in Jesus alone. But to people living under the kind of the soft legalism of their Jewish tradition, looked like an antinomian. He looked like someone who was abusing grace. An old Welsh preacher who pastored in England for a number of years named David Martin Lloyd-Jones, a guy who had four first names. Um, he said, if your preaching of the gospel, of God's free grace in Jesus Christ, does not provoke the charge from some of antinomianism, you're not preaching the gospel of the free grace of God in Jesus Christ. So for me to get up here week in and week out and to preach to you that we are not saved by our good works, but we are saved by the free grace of God. Regardless of how good we are or how bad we are, we are saved by Jesus. To some of y'all, that sounds like antinomianism. You're going to think, no, wait a minute. That means we can live however we want to, preacher. That's dangerous. You think, oh, you're going to tell people that they can do anything that they want to. But then for me to get up, say the next week, and to say that God expects you to be holy, and God expects you to be righteous, and God expects you to live a morally clear, a clean and pure life. To some of y'all think, wait a minute, preacher. Preacher, that sounds like that old-time strict religion. And who knows why we are the way we are. There are some people I know that they've been raised in very, very strict churches, raised under a lot of real oppressive cultural legalism, and as they grow up, they overcorrect out of that and drift in towards antinomianism. There are some people that are just crazy before they get saved. Never been in church at all. And as an overreaction against that lifestyle, they overcorrect into a form of legalism. And so what many of us do based upon our own temperament is we pigeonhole other people in these places, don't we? No, they're legalists. They're just self-righteous jerk. 
Those people, I don't even know if they're saved. I mean, I, I can't do that. Look how they live. Live like hell itself. They can't be saved. So hear me tonight. A person is not a legalist just because they dress up when they come to church. A person is not a godless pagan just because they don't. Just because somebody has a preference in church music that maybe predates 1950 does not mean that they are a self-righteous Pharisee or a Puritan. And just because somebody likes the electric guitar and the drums does not mean that, you know, they're a devil worshiper. It doesn't. But that's how Baptists interact with each other, isn't it? Y'all never been to a Baptist church, I guess. <laughs> just because... Someone listens to music that you do not listen to does not mean that they are not saved. It doesn't. Just because someone has certain behaviors that you think are really, really strict, really, really out there, does not mean that they do not love the Lord. This text teaches us plainly that people are different. You need to know that because there are differences of opinion running all through this church tonight. People with different ideas with different personal preferences, different opinions, and the challenge comes when we cannot tell the difference between our opinions and a biblical conviction. Now, I could do some preaching right there, but I'm trying to hurry. Jesus told the Pharisees one time, He said, Your problem is that you teach for doctrine the commandments of men. He said, Your problem is that you can't tell the difference between your traditions, which may be good, and what God actually said. And we don't want to be guilty of doing the same thing. So some people, it's just how they were raised. It's just what they're used to. It's just what they prefer. But it's easy for us to distrust people, to harm other people, to not love or to serve other people well and pigeonhole them into these categories. Third, you do not cure legalism by prescribing antinomianism and you don't cure antinomianism by prescribing legalism. See how Paul answers the charge. They come to him with this rumor. Then they tell him that there are these guys that have taken a vow at the temple. That's probably an Old Testament Nazarite vow. And they say, Paul, it would be good for our church family to see you honor their Jewish heritage. So why don't you go to the temple with them and pay off their bills at the temple? And Paul does. Why does Paul do that? Is there anything in the Bible today that says you or I as Christians need to take a Nazarite vow? No. Absolutely not. Is there anything in the Bible that says I need to go to the temple in Jerusalem to worship and pay bills to them? No, of course not. Jesus is our temple. Somebody say amen. amen. So why does Paul do this? Paul not taking a step backward here? No, Paul is serving these people well. Because he's showing them and showing us how the gospel of the Lord Jesus empowers us to serve people that we might disagree with about these issues. So you do not cure that kind of law-keeping, legalistic, rigid tendency by beating people over the head with your Christian freedom. You don't do it. And a lot of people want to do that. They want to flaunt their freedom in front of the legalists. They do it on Facebook, and they get tattoos, and they get everything you know above their neck pierced. And they say, look how free I am in Jesus. And look how self-righteous and judgmental all you hateful old Pharisees are. That's not how you fix this. But you don't fix antinomianism by being a legalist either. The answer for these people that you think of as out of control, the answer is not rules. The answer is the gospel. And the way they see the gospel is in how you serve them, put their needs above your desires, put their current spiritual condition as more important 
than where you are. What Paul does here in this text is he lives out the very principles he wrote about in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and Romans chapter 14. He respects the opinion of his weaker brothers and says, I am not going to use my freedom to hurt them. But I will use my freedom to serve them. He said in Galatians chapter 5, in a book all about legalism, he said, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, and that is that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. We are free from the disease of legalism and antinomianism only by looking to Christ. Because only in Christ do we see a Savior who perfectly kept the law for us. And who puts His Spirit in us to carry out the righteous commands of the law. And how did Jesus do that? He did it by being made under the law. By taking the burden of the law on Himself. Exactly as Paul does here. To serve us, to save us, and to help us. That's what Paul said in Romans chapter 8 verses 2 through 4. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. So Paul embraces that same idea that Jesus did at the cross and says let me show you a better way. And the better way is to sacrifice my preferences to sacrifice my freedom in the name of love to show you Christ. He lovingly serves people who have unfair expectations on him. He lovingly serves people who are spreading untrue rumors about him. He lovingly serves people whose theology is not as tight as his. Paul says, I'm going to do that for the sake of the gospel. Unfortunately, a lot of us are not free enough in Jesus to really do that. We're bound by our traditions and we say we can't serve those people where they are because they're just not as mature as us. So we'll keep them at arm's length until they grow up. Or we think we're so free in Jesus that all we ever do is make fun of all the old-fashioned people sitting around here. Paul is free. He's free to step into Judaism. He's free to walk out of it. Why? Because he's not defined by all of that. He's defined by Christ. His identity is in Jesus. So none of the rest of it really matters. Four, Paul does this. Love people and give them the benefit of the doubt. This church does not give Paul the benefit of the doubt, do they? They're talking about him before he gets there. Don't you love it when they do that? So Paul says, I want to give you the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt that you love the Lord. And I'm going to help you and I'm going to serve you. Why does he do that? Why does he do that? A couple reasons. And I'll finish up and we'll talk about the rest of this later. Um, he does that because Paul understood some of the nuances of ministry that, that probably the average church member in Jerusalem did not understand. One, he understood that they were in a transitional period in the history of the New Testament and in the history of the church. God had been dealing with the Jewish people pretty much exclusively for thousands of years. Now that's changing. Paul knew that things were changing. And he knew that he was in an area where things were changing very, very quickly. And he knew that everybody didn't grasp that yet. So he understood that he had to live between two worlds at one time. You need to understand today that we are in a period of great transition in the way that people think about church. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm not saying it's for the bad. Or I'm not saying it's for the good. I'm just saying it is. It is. Whether you like it or not, things are changing. 
And we need to learn how to navigate between a generation that is going on to glory, that has one set of expectations, and a generation that is just coming up that has a totally different set. And we need to learn how to serve both. Somebody say amen. amen. But also, Paul probably understood that this church, concerned with all of their Judaism, we look at and they think, we look at that and we think, man, they are crazy for making these vows and shaving their heads and going to the temple and all this insanity. But these are Jewish people. Not only do they have generations of Jewish customs behind them, but they are in a city trying to reach people with the gospel who have those same Jewish customs. These Jewish believers would never, ever reach their Jewish neighbors if they started totally rejecting everything the Old Testament said that Christ had fulfilled. They're not going to have barbecue bake sale fundraisers and reach their community because the Jews said there's no, that's unclean. There's no way. And so there's some element of this where even these people were saying we're willing to sacrifice what we might could do for the sake of the gospel. And we have to be sensitive to people around us. What I would leave you with tonight is this thought. Paul understood his place in the church as being the one to show people how Jesus loved them. And to show people how Jesus served them. And to show people how Jesus wanted to take care of them. And whatever you do here at Sharon Heights, I want you to know that's your place in the church too. It's to show the people around you how Jesus cared for them. To show the people around you how Jesus loved them. To show people around you how Jesus served them. Now, it is true, this may be hard. It is true that these Jewish believers were not as mature in the Lord as Paul was. Because Paul, I mean he's Paul for one thing, but because Paul understood that all of these burdens of cultural Judaism, he did not need those things to be right with God. He wrote half the New Testament about exactly that thing. Paul was more mature spiritually than they were. He was. You need to know today that if you need all of those rules to box in your relationship with God, that is not a sign of spiritual maturity. I had more rules when I was 10 at my house than I did when I was 20. And it wasn't because I was so mature when I was 10. But at the other hand, if you think, hey man, there are no rules and it's party time, I can do whatever I want to, that too is not a sign of spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is taking responsibility for other people. That's what Paul's doing in this text of Scripture. So, we look sometimes at these believers that really are just immature in different ways than we are. And we want to get, complain about them, fuss at them, get aggravated at them. But you know what I'm not going to do tonight? I'm not going to quit preaching tonight and go in the nursery and say, Y'all need to grow up! What do you mean crying about everything that don't go your way? These toys aren't all yours? And somebody stinks. What's wrong with you? Straighten this up. Why am I not going to do that? Because they're babies. They're supposed to be immature. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go get my little girl out of the nursery. I'm going to take her home. She needs a diaper. I'm going to change her diaper. I'm going to hold her on my couch. I'm going to feed her a bottle. I'm going to grab her little hands and teach her to walk. I'm going to teach her syllable by syllable to say dada and mama. Why? Because she's a baby and she has to learn. 
That's what Paul is doing in this text of Scripture. I'm not saying they're totally babes in Christ, but he's leading them to maturity by showing them Jesus. That's what God expects for you to do and what he expects for me to do. Because the truth is, none of us are as mature as we want to believe we are. We're really, really not. We've still got a lot of growing up to do. We should want to help those coming along behind us. However, if after years and years and years of me changing diapers, teaching her to say, Dad, Dad, teaching her how to walk and talk and function and act, if she never grows up, there's a problem. There's a problem. If you want to hear about that, you need to come back next Sunday evening. Amen, bro? Let's stand together tonight. I don't know how this message may have, have gripped you today. But I do know that the, the, the fault line of antinomianism and legalism run not only through our church, but they also run through each of our individual hearts. Maybe you've seen some legalistic tendencies in you, and you say, Lord, I don't know where they came from. Maybe my upbringing outside of church, my upbringing in church. But Lord, I want to be free enough from that to serve and to love people. Folks, I've got a lot of that kind of religious baggage in my past. I grew up as a preacher's kid, and I will screw you up. And I, but I thank God. I thank God that I was raised in church. I thank God that my parents didn't give me a choice but to be in the house of God. I thank God that I was in our age. I thank God that I was in youth. And I thank God that people taught the word to me. But I don't want to use those things to beat up on other people. I want to use them to serve other people. Others of you tonight maybe didn't have that background. And you look around at these other people and you think, man, they might be a little bit crazy. But you need to see your freedom in Jesus as freedom to serve them. Freedom to love them. It'd be good for all of you to come today and say, Lord, help me to come alongside the people in my church family. Show them how Jesus loves them. Show them how Jesus serves them. While we sing, if you need to come.